0: Hello everybody, I'm Simon Bradley, and I'd like to introduce you to Leading in a Climate-Changed World by Olivia Mythodrama. This is Series 2, Episode 1. First of all, to reintroduce you to the podcast... Leading in a Climate Change World is all about exploring the leadership that's required to take on the climate crisis and how we engage with environmental and ecological challenges that we seem to be facing in alarming regularity. The objectives of the podcast are to identify qualities of leadership and to find recommended practices and how we can develop leaders with these qualities, so either within ourselves or through other people. We also take a look at where we're seeing progress, either in people or companies, organisations and even countries, and we take a look at what's not working, so what's preventing movement in this important field. Is it a society, culture, politics and so on? So whether we get a message of hope or despair, we, we hope that there's going to be some inspiration and information to help you along the way. I think it's important to say that this podcast isn't necessarily aimed at people already participating in this type of work and it's not aimed at leaders in the traditional sense. Um, We want to connect with people from all walks of life, in all positions of employment or experience, young, old. I think one of the messages that consistently came from Series 1 is that you can make a genuine change, whatever your situation. Our first episode, we reintroduced Robin Alfred, our uh, Senior Leadership Programme Director and interviewer extraordinaire. And in this episode, Robin speaks to Kosher Joubert, who is CEO of the Global Eco Village Network. This is a fascinating and in depth discussion uh, about the qualities and leadership that we need and how we can engage in different practices which will allow us to connect deeply uh, with the current circumstances. In addition to the interview, I also want to introduce you to the Communities for Future Summit, which is an entirely free online experience hosted by Kosher's organisation, the Global Eco Village Network. The Communities for Future Summit will take place from the 1st to the 10th of February 2020 and will bring leading edge thinkers and leaders from around the globe to engage in concrete action for a just and regenerative future participation in the summit is completely free and interviews can be accessed online so to to access these please visit summit2020.ecovillage.org that's summit2020 the numbers 2020.ecovillage.org and you can sign up there It's great to be back. I hope you really enjoy this episode. We already have a number of big names and people from well-known organisations and movements lined up. So please follow or subscribe to the podcast to get alerts. Um, We release one every other week. Uh, If you want to leave a review as well, that'd be incredible. And please feel free to get in touch with me for uh, feedback or suggestions, recommendations and so on. You can email me on hello at leadinginaclimatechangedworld.com. So I hope you enjoyed the break. It's amazing to be back. I'm going to hand over now to Robin and Kosha. So welcome everybody to our podcast series, Leading in a Climate Changed World.
1: Today it is a great pleasure to be interviewing Kosha Joubert. Kosha serves as CEO of the Global Ecovillage Network, also known as GEN. She has worked extensively in the fields of community empowerment, intercultural collaboration, and the emergence of collective wisdom. Kosha is a co-founder of Gaia Education, which develops trainings at the cutting edge of sustainability, and co-author of the internationally applied curriculum of the Ecovillage Design Education. She is also the author of a book on collective wisdom and editor of books on social tools for building community and ecovillage solutions. Kosha grew up in South Africa under apartheid and has been dedicated to the healing of divides and of collective trauma ever since. She received the Daddy Janki Award, 100 Women of Spirit, for engaging spirituality in life and work and for making a difference in the world. In 2019, she hosted the Power of Community Online Summit, which attracted more than 10,000 participants. And in February 2020, we'll follow this up with a second summit dedicated to Communities for Future, exploring our response to the climate emergency. And finally, she's just back from the UN Climate Conference COP25 in Madrid, where she has been signing agreements to implement ecovillage development programs with governments from the Gambia, Sierra Leone, Sudan, Liberia, Togo, and Burkina Faso. So, big welcome to you today, Kasha.
2: Thank you, Robin. Lovely to be here with you.
1: And maybe you could start because you, as we know from from the bio that I just read, you do a lot of work around eco-villages. Maybe for those people who are not familiar with what an eco-village is, you could just start with a a brief description of what that is and why it's your focus around sustainable development.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Global Ecovillage Network was set up in 1995 really to bring together a network of projects on the ground that are started by community leaders, local leaders on the ground who had realized very early on from probably a whole array of inspirations, but many of them in the 70s and 80s when the first reports came out about the dire situation of the planet. Um limits to growth from the Club of Rome, which I think was published in 1978 and really brought brought present that we need to change our lifestyles. And the way that mainstream was going was not going to be um, future proof. And people started realizing that this was serious and they became serious about creating alternative pathways and really designing these. And some of the early hippie communities were a part of this. You know, it was, a, as my friend Albert Bates, who's a co-founder of the farm in, in um, the USA, likes to say, actually, the word hippie comes from Volof in, in Senegal and was introduced into the jazz scene in the USA from the Volov language. And there it means those with their eyes wide open, those that wake up early and are awake, so, hip, you know, hip music, hip hop music, and the hippie movement all come from the same word. And, you know, sometimes we like to re own these words. So, speaking about the hippie communities as awakening communities, they're also a part of this movement. Um, they have evolved and matured. But um, today, eco villages are much more mainstream. We have traditional villages transitioning into eco villages, intentional communities. And the short definition includes three main aspects, which is they're participatory, so they're designed by the people for the community. They include all four areas of regeneration, social, culture, ecology, and economy. And we speak about regeneration. They regenerate the systems that they are a part of. They bring life back. That's the short definition description.
1: Yeah, fantastic. (laughs) Thank you for the the etymology of the word hippie. I wasn't aware of that.
2: Um,
1: So maybe we can can bridge that into leadership because you said it's often from leaders in communities who see that something is necessary. And as you know, this series is about leading in a climate changed world. How are you experiencing the marriage also of the kind of top down solutions? You've just been at COP25, signing lots of agreements with governments. So I guess want to do kind of top down solutions. And you also do a lot of bottom up grassroots work, how are you experiencing the the balance between the two and, and the kind of leadership that is inspiring you at the moment?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I feel that what science is telling us is that at this time, it's already too late, right? That's what science and the International Panel for Climate Change, if we take them seriously, and then add to them the reports that are actually coming in, it's too late. So as my friend Daniel Valls says, you know, we have to do the impossible because we cannot bear to accept the probable, you know, or as Charles Eisenstein says, we have to cultivate the power of miracle. We have to learn the ingredients of miracles again. And I think that miracles are actually more and more proven by modern science and modern physics in that. Um, the actions that we take are not just um, this is not a step-by-step approach that we're following but we're working in nested realities where when I come completely 100% present in the current moment and I find the response that is the true response to this particular moment breaking through old patterns that are not conducive to regenerating life and completely creating the patterns that are conducive to supporting life, I create a new reality that goes beyond my immediate visible circle of influence. So assuming that we are connected to each other and to the world around us in ways that are not yet fully understood by us rationally, but that people have felt in ancient cultures through times. We know that our influence can go beyond what we immediately recognize rationally. That's what I'm trying to say. So for me, the interesting thing is that leadership currently, in my eyes, can come from anywhere. And I think Greta has been a shining example for that, you know, from a young girl with issues, you could say, sitting in front of a school in Sweden to Times person of the year 2019. You know, I just met her at COP and it was, um, I think what many people have been saying, it was truly worrying to see this small girl of 16 years old huddling away in her anorak, trying to pull it down over her face, you know, really, with an onslaught of media um, attention. Um, You know, this is what what happens, yeah? Our media singles out individuals and, um, yeah, there's a, a... there's some issues, I think, that our media also creates around that. But it shows that leadership can come from anywhere. And I see that leadership currently comes from all those places where people dedicate themselves to stepping out of their comfort zones, coming truly present, listening deeply to the systems that we are a part of, and being dedicated to searching out those patterns and responses that are conducive to life um, put into a nutshell and whether that comes from the grassroots or from the top people in power the one percent i don't care i think the most exciting thing is that sometimes we can recognize each other across the sectors of society and suddenly those divides, you know, I'm the Minister of Environment and I am a nobody from the grassroots in the Gambia, it suddenly doesn't matter because there's a recognition of dignity, of human dignity and presence and heart heart presence that cuts across these divides where actually the President or the Minister of Environment has a moment of true relaxation and happiness in recognizing a person who actually wants to support.
1: Yeah. yeah I noticed that's beautiful. And I, I really like your definition also of, of leadership and what's required, some of the qualities that are required in the leaders that we need at the moment. And I noticed that um, when I read out the number of, of uh, agreements you've just signed at COP25, they're all in African countries. And, and the examples you've just given about, Ministers meeting people from the grassroots and smiling and relaxing and Respecting each other from an African context and I wonder if you could speak a bit about how you've experienced the differences And maybe also the similarities on the different continents that you work in particularly around around leadership Recognizing each other power differentials Is it different in in the Western world or in the global north than the African countries that you engage with for example?
2: well, I guess that I have, you know, I've been very touched, like some of the countries that I've just named, Sierra, uh, sorry, sorry, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Sudan, they all come out of very, very painful, deep um, civil wars that were so... um, You know, I could also name Rwanda. We're about to sign a partnership with Rwanda, and they've also taken on the inspiration of the EcoVillage Network and have started what they call the Green Village Movement. So we're also partnering in Rwanda just as another example. So the countries that are most confronted with their own vulnerability are the countries that are most open to collaborating with their own civil society and are realizing that they have to build on the intelligence and wisdom of their own people, and that fall back on the power of women who carry community and care for children, that fall back also on on the intelligentsia, on the intellectuals of the country and say, we need to work with you. Um, And the countries where economic power is more, of a driving force you know i'm i 'm speaking this out, but you know this is my um, my distrust you could say, but that's I, I, I find that countries where the economic drivers of big companies are more part of the driving force behind the political scene, it is much harder for those voices in governments that would really love to work with civil society um, to come through. And I want to name, you know, in 2017, there was a very brilliant EU research project called TESS, T-E-S-S, that people could search that out, that actually showed the power of community-led transformation, even for the EU, that if only, I don't, you know, don't, um, beat me up if I get the numbers wrong here, but they they showed one of the quotes is, is um, if only 5% of the EU would engage in community-led transformation and this is transition town initiatives, eco-village development, permaculture, urban gardens, all of this kind of stuff, um, it would suffice for 80 or 90% of the EU to reach their carbon emission reduction goals by 2020. This was in 2017. So research is already showing that community-led change, change that comes bottom up, is incredibly effective. There's also um, research around the, the frequency of replication that happens um, by itself without, you know, this doesn't need huge sums of money thrown at it. Um, the effect is huge you know so why is this not on the front of implementation as we speak about the climate agreements and climate action implementation and r- ramping up climate action you know um
1: and why, yeah. why isn't it in your experience you're, you're saying you think it's partly because there's a corporate power block that is getting in the way of that is that your experience or what other reasons would you say we also wondering about the absence of political leadership to drive this, what would you say are the factors that stop what seems to be a very obvious way of helping governments um, meet the targets of the Paris Cl- Climate Agreement?
2: Yeah, I mean, if we, if we go back to, you know, the eco side laws and the work that Polly Higgins was doing before she passed last year on Easter Sunday, um, you know, which was to mainly bring the the oil companies to the Hague International um, Tribunal. and
1: Just to say that that work, of course, is still continuing with with Jojo and and other people in that movement.
2: Absolutely. Um, But still, you know, I just want to honour Polly Higgins here for a moment. And, um, you know, really bringing present the amount of destructive um, influence that the oil industry has spread through their advertisement, influencing of scientific um, publications, etc. And this is being continued by other companies. So I just don't want to play that down. I know it's uncomfortable to speak to that. And from what I see also in Africa, it's a huge force. And part of my my pain also in coming back from um, COP25 now is that the whole discussion about carbon trade, carbon emission trade, is sidetracking a lot of the energy um, into pathways that are not very effective in implementing real change on the ground. And when i travel to africa and see how trees are being planted on thousands of hectares along highways with no one that will actually caretake these trees while trees are being cut down and shipped out of the country faster than you can count them at the same time you know that there is a real um there is confusion about how to actually implement, and also a lot of the green climate funds are dripping down very, very slowly and never reach the ground. Um, this is very worrying. It's very worrying if we actually want to, if our intention is to safeguard this planet for future generations. So um I want to take this seriously and also call on all the companies to ensure that they invest in, and I know this is happening more and more in campaigns, corporate social responsibility that really supports the work on the ground. And also with their products, make sure that they produce the products that are needed for, for the future. Um, Yeah. And maybe you just repeat your question because I'm very aware that I've you know, no, That's great. I
1: think, no, I think you're, you're taking us in. Well, I was asking you what were the blocks to implementing these kind of cross-through yeah. I think you've spoken very clearly about that. And I want to come back to something you mentioned earlier when you were talking about the African countries that are coming forward to say we, we want these bottom-up solutions. And you said they come from more vulnerable spaces, from mm. civil war or from conflict or from challenges. And if we now focus more into or continue to focus into the leadership question, mm. Do you think it is important for, what is the role of vulnerability in leadership? Like we talked about it on a nation level, or you've mentioned it on a a national level. I'm curious about the qualities of leadership that are needed to feel the intensity of the the call now. And I'm I'm thinking about vulnerability and I'm also thinking about spirituality. Also in the bio I read, you've been awarded an award for bringing spirituality into life. So is it important for leaders to have a spiritual sense? Is it important for them to be vulnerable?
2: Mm, beautiful. Let me just come back to the blocks for one more moment. Yeah, because I feel, um, I just want to name two more. So one, I believe, is the block of um, conversation circles. How, what is true? a true participatory democracy? How do we allow our leaders to actually listen to the voices from the ground? Where at the moment, I feel like there is a lot of interference between the real voices from the ground and our political leaders, and a lot more direct conversations like we've seen in Ireland, um, and also in Germany actually, um, would be really important, I feel to allow citizens' voices to come through more directly.
1: Are you talking about things like citizens' assemblies?
2: Yes, yeah, thank you. And the other block I think is self-confidence in grassroots networks and capacity building. So many of the people doing the good work on the ground have done so irrespective of what The leading class or the government is doing. And to learn that actually this is a time where the game has completely changed. You know, we're all in one boat here. And governments, there are those good elements in governments everywhere, maybe not everywhere, (laughs) but you know, I would say everywhere that we can seek out that have stepped into politics, not for their own agrandissement, but really for their. For their people, for their love of their countries and are willing to work together and that we can find them and that we can find the words that we need to also learn how to use the words that bridge the gap between us. So I think capacity building, um, self-worth increase of the the grassroots networks and um, making spaces and channels for the voices to be heard is of highest importance. Yeah.
1: Great, thank you. So now we come back to this yes, question about your about question. These two qualities, like vulnerability yeah. and and spirituality, how important are these for leaders? Would you say?
2: Yeah, I think that we're still, as we step into leadership in the world, you know, and I have a very very small sense of this as CEO of the Global Ecovillage Network. We are. You know, our networks, our countries expect us to be strong leaders. And unfortunately, we can see that in times of trouble like we are in, um, it seems like ridiculously bolstered up strong male leaders, you know, are on the rise again. You know, so people are still look for the strength and invulnerability in leadership. Um, and it's a big thing to become vulnerable and show vulnerability in, in those places. It's it's a real edge. It takes great courage. <clears throat> yeah. And I think for the true leadership that we need, there is no other way but to start feeling into our vulnerability because from a place of invulnerability, we... we We can only do that, feel invulnerable, if we run the patterns that we are used to. It's in our habits that we feel comfortable and invulnerable. And as soon as we um, become serious about understanding that the very habits in our DNA, in our cultural DNA also, are what have brought us to this point, you know, like Einstein said. I'm sorry for repeating this quote that we know so well. We cannot change the systems that we are a part of from the same awareness or same consciousness that created them. We need to deeply change, and we can only do that if we allow for that moment of vulnerability to really arise. And in my personal experience, again, speaking from my personal experience, as soon as we are in leadership, Positions and even long before um, the busyness of modern life, the huge increase of information through flow, um, the increase of the complexity that we are invited to see on a daily basis and contend with is of such a nature that if we do not insert silence and practice into our everyday life, um, I don't think that we can find a way to. Um, bring enough space in order to be able to see with enough witnessing quality to actually not just repeat the patterns of yesterday. So one of the, the little stories that have inspired me most for, I don't know, probably the past 20 years is the story about Gandhi when he was asked about journalists by a journalist about how he deals with the complexity of his everyday life. I'm telling the story in my words now. You know, I never. I think I was told the story by someone, and I never read the original story. But um, he was asked by a journalist about how he deals with it, and he said, "Well, I meditate an hour a day." You know, and I've been meditating an hour a day for the past, I think, seven years. Um, and then he was asked by the same journalist, "Yeah, but what do you do when life becomes so busy?" that you just don't find the time to, hour, to meditate an hour a day. And he said, well, then I get up earlier and I meditate two hours a day. And I've, I've really taken that with me and it's been a guide, guidance in my life and I actually do that. So when I get so stressed out that I wake up at three worrying, I, I know the time is there and I often sit up at three o'clock at night and meditate one and a half hours because I need to find back to a space in the midst of the busyness before I start my day. And otherwise I know that I will bring my anxiety to my team, to the conversations I have. And very, it's because it's like, you know, that, that center of presence, it feels like very small doors that could have opened clothes instead when I bring my anxiety to them and it it does feel like magic or miracle
1: so that sounds wonderful and I'm curious what you would suggest to people who don't have a meditation practice who don't meditate for an hour for an hour seems like a lifetime you know five minutes is maybe a long time for people to be (laughs) So, so maybe we can broaden this a little bit into this question of consciousness which you mentioned earlier like in your experience and if you were to be offering a leadership training, let's say, and you feel one of the things we need to do is bring people to the next level of consciousness or to transcend the paradigms that they're currently working within. What kind of practices might you surface that would support people to do that? You've talked about shedding some of the habits of the past because that's much easier said than done. So, what would you start to bring forward as possibilities for practice?
2: Yeah, I mean, again, I. I think that at the heart of it, it's a shift from, um, well, firstly, is the realization that there is a difference between being in an anxiety or witnessing my anxiety. And that whenever I feel intense stress in my body, it means I am in it. And we all suffer from that when we're in leadership positions. It doesn't matter where, you know, where we work, um, but we suffer from the stress of deadlines, you know, our team staff being requiring more guidance from us, um, coming back with difficult feedback, um, things not moving forward the way we would like to see it. You know, there's stress. <laughs> that easily comes up. And the moment stress comes up, we know that we have lost the larger perspective and we are less effective in our work. And in that moment, we can choose to continue working or we can choose to take a moment to regain perspective. And, you know, there's lots of different techniques Um, I think the internet is great in many ways. And one thing is it can offer us beautiful guidance. You know, there's wonderful apps for the phones that we can use. And I think it's up to each of us to find, you know, what is the best way for you? I have found that for me, it really helps to have beautiful um, plants around me, house plants. I love my plants come from a family of botanists and biologists. And I love plants. So When I get stressed out, I sometimes do something as simple as look at the beautiful shape of a leaf. And just for a moment, look at the miracle of nature, which is right here in my room with me, growing away, or the beauty of a flower, you know, and this is different for each person. Like, what is it that helps you come back to yourself? And, you know... It, that helps me come back to my breath and comes come back to a grounding, and it's often just a, a two minute quiet. I watched you just before you started the interview. just take a moment of inner silence before you set out into the interview. you know it's just it just takes a moment, so we can insert those small awarenesses into our day in the end. Um, I do think that we need to insert moments of quiet where we allow ourselves to digest what happens, because what has been happening, because otherwise it clogs up our nervous system. And our nervous system, I feel is, in a way, it's our most precious instrument in this world. And I think we're nowhere close, even I'm fascinated with current um, neuroscience, and all the research that is being done. But I think, you know, just to, to for a moment give attention to our nervous system and acknowledge this is an instrument we have only just started to explore.
1: <laughs> and it's,
2: it's the finest instrument we work with and work through in our work in the world.
1: I'm just wondering, as you're talking, maybe you could just guide us now in like two minutes of kind of reflection, (laughs) witnessing what you've just described, so that we get a felt experience of what you're talking about. Would you do that?
2: Yeah, okay. (laughs) If this is what your podcast hearers would like. I mean, It would be
1: very lovely just to have a couple of minutes of quiet, and you can just guide us into how we might do this. Because for some people, this is second nature. For some people, it might feel like a very strange thing to do.
2: Yeah, so I invite you um, right now, you can keep your eyes open, especially maybe you're driving while you're listening to this. So, you know, this is not about opening or closing your eyes. But just take a moment. I find the easiest for me, like, again, I don't know whether you have plants around you anywhere right now, but maybe the easiest would be to just connect to your breath. Because that we always carry with us. And just notice for a moment this quiet stream of energy flowing out and flowing in. Notice how deeply you can feel the breath landing in your body. As you breathe in, can you feel the breath itself expanding your lungs, your belly, But also the oxygen that comes through entering your cells. First your bloodstream, then your cells. Throughout your body. Yeah, maybe you can also take a moment to notice the out breath. Flowing back out into the world, entering the space around you, the air. Entering a deep, deep intimacy with all that is around you. It's a very simple way of deepening our connectedness, our awareness of our connectedness to the world. And I would also invite us to just for a moment feel our hearts and notice which which feeling emotion, which emotion is most alive in you. Because sometimes when we're so busy, we lose the connection to the finer vibrations of sadness, hope, joy, fear, anger, love, that might be running through us. And this is very much the spice of our life, the juiciness between us, Life can become quite dry when we don't allow the compassionate level of also giving space to our emotions. And then we can come back to our minds and just notice whether there's maybe more spaciousness in our mind now after these few moments spent in a different way. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's, it's a very simple practice, but it radically transforms both the, the conversation and the space between us and also what's happening inside me, for sure. I feel much more relaxed, open, spacious now than I did five minutes ago or two minutes ago. So thank you for guiding us through that. And it, and it brings me to this question around, so this is in a way witnessing, you used the word witnessing earlier. And then I want to also delve into two topics before we close. One is, a, is coming back to this question of consciousness. So is this witnessing practice part of what helps to build the bridge to another level of consciousness? And, and if not, how do, we, how do we do what Einstein says? How do, we, how do we operate from a new, a higher level of consciousness to look at the existing challenges that we face? Maybe we'll, let's just start with that question, then I have one more to, to close with.
2: Yeah um I mean I as I said before I believe that our nervous systems are the refined tool you know our whole bodies are exquisite tools that we bring into this world and we don't know them yet we don't work with them with care and understanding so you know climate change is an issue of not finding the right response, not finding our right, in my eyes, climate change is one result of human beings not being healed, (laughs) not unfolding our potential, but living in cultures and coming from lineages that have been deeply traumatized whether as perpetrators or victims and nervous systems that are carrying the scars of that trauma and are therefore not able to sensitively listen to and respond to the feedback from life, the world, the living ses- systems that we are a part of. I have a deep inner belief that if we were to listen be able to listen well we would find the right response and i believe that each of us has a heart heart's intent why we are here an innate purpose and an inner compass and i'm delighted you know because this is like i would say my biggest treasure in life is that my inner compass is awake and came awake i think through the hardship also Um, you know, and it's ridiculous if I speak of hardship as a white Afrikaner growing up under apartheid, but, you know, it brought it online and it brought me into doing things that took a lot of courage for me and that brought me into my life's journey. So I think this listening to the inner guidance and to this Mm. fine feedback that our nervous system gives us. And when we do that, um, it tells us what to do, what is the next step for us. And it's never about 10 years or 20 years ahead. It's always about the next step. And it always takes courage because it will always take us beyond what is comfortable right now. So that is, you know, the moment we relax, we become more able to listen to ourselves and more opportunities arise. And for me, it's been amazing in these conversations, both within countries that I've traveled to and spoken to ministries and at COP, where I speak to people from governments. It's not something that I ever expected doing. And to find sunny in conversations, I sometimes use this image, maybe it's a strange one, but it's like, I expect things to be incredibly bureaucratic and difficult. And instead the experience is like of a knife slicing through soft butter. And it's just like, it's just, you know, doors just open and there is a resonance and the resonance is felt. a new opportunity arises where there was no door even before. Nobody knew there was a door, but a new reality unfolds. That to me is a miracle. And it opens up in unforeseen places through deep connectedness when unforeseen connections are made. And it's as if... uh, uh, potential that has always been there in the field and that is just waiting to be birthed into the scene reality bursts through and we're just the instruments it's not we didn't create this you know it's something it was already there it was ready to be birthed and we are just the instruments opening the door and that's why it feels like a miracle you know Yeah. And that's the new consciousness. So that's why how we create a planet that becomes bigger than the planet we currently think of is the reality, you know, it's like reality changes. That's also why I have a question mark to the planetary boundaries. (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's beautiful. And I guess that's also where hope begins in a way. But I want to, I want to just, the last question I had is something you just started to refer to, which is about the nature of trauma and collective trauma. I also know that you work in this field and how important is it for leaders to be trauma informed?
2: I mean, the word trauma is like a new word, right? So... I believe that no true leaders could be true leaders if they were not trauma informed, whether they use that word or not. And, you know, I've been working in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia, in China, in Europe. And, you know, I see that the kind of leaders that are emerging are, you know, they have very different cultural mannerisms, you could say, you know like the Latin American fiery um, protest kind of, it's like a fiery, earthy, it's very different from the African, um, uh, which is, I don't want to put flat words on this actually, so I won't continue this line of speaking, but to me it's part of the beauty that leadership expresses itself in culturally appropriate ways in different cultures. And that includes also the response to the trauma that the particular cultural field carries, um, which makes the leadership particular. It needs to be particular um, to the cultural field. So leadership in Germany at this point in time is very different from leadership in Sierra Leone or leadership in China or in Sri Lanka. You know, it's different because it speaks from and to the cultural wound that place carries and people carry. Um, So I would say in the depth of leadership, true leadership is compassion, which means that we are able to listen to the field such that we are able to respond adequately to the life systems that we are a part of. And that includes trauma awareness. And yeah, I love, you know, we were also both just part of the Collective Trauma Summit that was hosted by Thomas Hubel and drew, I think, 52,000 participants from 176 countries. So very aware of the interest that this topic is um, attracting. and i think again you know that conversation alerts us to the fact that the the very the very nature of trauma is that we are swimming in it therefore we cannot see our own cultural trauma and i think that's that's the same with you know the the question around Einstein and the shifting consciousness. We are swimming in the current consciousness, so we cannot see the next level of consciousness, which is why the witnessing and the listening becomes so crucial, and also the increase of complexity, which allows us, because it's on the edges, right? Permaculture has this beautiful concept that life is most thriving on the edges, you know, edge awareness. So everywhere on the edges, and this has always been my, um, my fuel, you could say, is traveling between cultures, um, listening deeply to the cultural fields that I enter, um, traveling in between sectors of society and listening deeply when I'm on that edge. I think that's, it's the most exciting place because that's where the new is able to enter my system and where freshness, fresh freshness comes in. So it's, yes, it's there in my meditation. When I listen to universal intelligence, it's there in my um, conversation. When I have conversations with people that are doing something completely and utterly different from me. Yeah. And I think the one thing that is currently often missing is listening to the people on the ground. So, I just want to bring that voice in because that is what I also stand for is the people on the ground who are actually experiencing climate change right now. The people in Zimbabwe who are experiencing another drought, my friends at the Permaculture Institute, whose plants have shrivelled in the last drought, you know the people in Malawi who experienced the floods, you know the people in Sri Lanka who 've experienced the bombings and the destruction of community fabric. You know, it's these voices need to be more directly heard and felt so that the compassion in us can awaken to find the right response. And yeah, I think that's important. So maybe I can propose a few more leaders for your podcast series.
1: Please do. <laughs> From those kind of places. Absolutely. We'd be delighted. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, and I think that's a great note on which to, to close, actually, because we definitely also want to broaden the, the, the range of speakers that we have in the podcast series. And I just want to also really acknowledge and appreciate and applaud the work that you do to bring those voices, not just the voices, but also the, the action, the development, the hope that you can catalyze in some of the communities that you work in. Thank you for the time you've spent with us today. It feels like it's been both broad and deep at the same time. We've touched on many different areas. And I want to wish you every success in your work for Gen, for the Global Ecobliction Network, with the online summit that's coming next February, for the global reach of the consciousness that you're also seeking to develop. So wishing you every success into the future. And thank you so much for your time today, Kosha.
2: Thank you, Robin. And maybe just as one last comment, because I know, you know, usually people think that these small local solutions are so small, you know, and just to say clearly that Jen now reaches out to more than 6,000 communities and, you know, we know it's more than 10,000, but 6,000, we can actually show the communities in more than 114 countries. You know, small solutions everywhere do create a new tapestry as well. So, yeah, thank you very much for this space. Thank you, everyone who's been listening.